Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name is Mike Rowolf, and I am the lead minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, you can find us on Facebook or check out our website at anacortischristian.church. We are deep in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10 today. And lately, the last three chapters or so have been about a paradigm shift. And Christianity is a major paradigm shift in the way that we relate to God. In fact, in that early time, in the first century, it was such a paradigm shift that it was often mistaken for atheism because it looked nothing like the other religions and practices of the world in that day. For example, if someone were to come up and say, so are you a Christian? And you say, yeah. And they say, okay, where's your temple? And they say, well, we don't have a temple. And they say, well, you don't have a temple? Well, where do the priests then go to perform their rituals and sacrifices? And you say, well, we don't actually have priests anymore. And you say, you don't have priests? Well, who, who, who offers sacrifices to God on your behalf? And And you'd say, well, we actually don't need to offer sacrifices. And that just um, looked unlike anything else they'd ever seen. It was a paradigm shift. And and so a lot of times it got actually mistaken for atheism in a way. And we've talked about how if you are coming to God, uh, or if you are coming to God, you're seeking out an encounter with God, a relationship with God, there are several things you're probably going to do. One, you're going to go to a place a church, a temple, a shrine, something. Uh, Two, you're going to find a practitioner of that faith who's going to help you, a priest or something along those lines, a leader. Uh, Three, they're going to give you a prescription or the terms of engagement or the sacrifices or the covenant, you know, arrangements, all that stuff. And so we've talked about the priest and how Jesus is a greater high priest, a major paradigm shift in that concept. And how Jesus is the sacrifice, and that's where Mark was last week. Bit off a huge chunk to talk about the blood in chapter 9, and that was where we talked about last week. And also the terms of engagement, or the covenant, and how this paradigm shift is a new covenant agreement in how we relate to God. But what we haven't yet talked about is the place. Where do you go to have an encounter with God? And that's In this case, he's talking about a place called the tabernacle. So we're going to speak to that today and explore that. So let's go ahead and read our passage. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I know we just prayed, but would you pray with me again? Father, right now I ask that your words would permeate our hearts, 
and not just be words on a page, Lord, but something that truly does speak to us. And I pray that you'd help me to convey that message clearly to us. And Lord, that it's your spirit that would open this up and speak to us today. Um, not my strength or my wit. Um, and that we'd walk out of here changed in some way because of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. This passage begins with a therefore, okay? And you always want to know what's the therefore, therefore. This is a huge culminating summary of the last three chapters, and it's a segue into the next section. So it's a big deal, and it's not to be taken for granted. It's a big climactic moment. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And if we just started there, or if we don't, you know, if we're just used to that, that, you can take that for granted. But that's not normal. Okay, this is a new paradigm. The old paradigm of religion is you actually can't enter into God's holy places. But you can enter a, a temple or a shrine that acts as a representation. And even then, only the priest could go in on your behalf. In any case... Having confidence to enter the holy places is not normal, okay? And we, we can get used to this idea. We can take it for granted. So what does that mean for us today then? What does what the holy places correlate to in our lives today? Where is this place and how do we enter? And to answer, I want to jump back into chapter 9 because he's using the language to talk about a tabernacle which was the place of worship um, for the Israelites. And so I'm going to look at chapter 9, verse 1 through 4. And I know Mark covered some of this last week, but he had a different emphasis, so we're, we're complimenting here. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. All right, so the holy places, the picture that we're given, is of a place called the tabernacle. It was an earthly place of worship where you would encounter God, and everything about this tabernacle had multiple layers of meaning. By the way, I created a handout that's in your bulletin, because today is going to get a little heady. Um, that's because I was a geometry student, not an algebra student. Like, you couldn't just give me numbers and tell me to plug them in and, and I could figure it out. I had to see the big picture. Okay, I had, to, I, had to, I had to get my mind around it. And as we're looking at the passage in chapter 10 this week, I'm staring at this going, why is he speaking this way? Why does he do certain things with it? And something happens when the light bulb goes off and there's an aha moment. And I'm hoping we can have a light bulb moment this morning. So um, you're gonna have to bear with me because this is, this is kind of a deeper message, but I think it's gonna be amazing um, if, you can, if you can track with me a little bit. Okay, everything in this tent, this tabernacle, represents a lot of different things. It represented God's 
holy throne room in heaven. Okay, it also represents a, a copy of how Moses and God's people encountered him on Mount Sinai in the, chap- in the Exodus. The symbols go all the way back to the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2. Basically, to enter the tabernacle is to ascend the mountain of the Lord, or it's to restore Eden on earth. It's to have a place where heaven and earth connect And you have this restoration of what was lost in the fall and the ability to come into the garden once more, okay? But without going way into depth on every part, I just want to look at what the text says straightforward about uh, about it. There are two sections, and in the first he says there's a lampstand, a table, and bread on the table, Again, there's a lot of meaning here. We're not going to go into all of it. But even if you just look at these at face value and you ask the question, if I'm looking for an encounter with God, if I'm seeking the divine, what do I want? And what do you want? Why are you here today? Why are you here? Okay. And the first thing you have is a lamp. You want light. Okay, in the world in the, around us, life is chaotic. It's turbulent. Sometimes it feels like you're groping around in the dark trying to make sense of it all. Proverbs says that wisdom, the ability to see, is a tree of life. The lampstand was meant to represent the tree of life. It had seven branches. Each one had almond blossoms where a candle sat. And... That's the the light, okay? The priests were supposed to keep that light always lit because it represents God's face or God's light always shining upon the people. Why do you come to church? Why would you look for God? You want to see. You want wisdom. You want a clear conscience. You want to make sense of your life. You want to be able to look around and understand. Okay, wisdom, right? Light. Jesus... um, Jesus said the eye is is the lamp of the body. And it speaks to this same idea of the light lighting up the tabernacle, like light flooding into our body. But if the light goes dim, then we can't see. We're we're blind, right? Um, Yeah, so there's the lamp. In John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus in reference to this tabernacle, he says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Previously, it was up to the priests to make sure that the darkness never overcame the light. So why come to God? You want to see. You need wisdom. You need direction. Where do you find a clear conscience? Maybe you feel like right now your life is chaotic and unstable. You feel like you're walking in darkness. At the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, it says the earth was chaotic. It was without form and void and darkness was over the surface of the waters. And the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness. And I want you to keep that image in your mind because it's going to come into play later as well. So we want light. Secondly, there's a table. And I believe the table represents the service, the priestly service of the tabernacle. I'm getting some feedback here, Jeff. It's kind of loud, I think. Um, 
And that emblemizes service to the community and to the world, not just to the regulations of the tent, which is all about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And he says later in, in verse 10 of chapter 9, that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So you come to God, one, you're seeking light, but also two, you want to answer the question, how am I supposed to live? Okay, how am I supposed to live in right relationship with God? Why else would you come to God? You want to know what's the path What's the regulations, the rules, the way forward? What is truth according to God? How does that challenge my notion of truth and call me to change some things? And so light, truth, service. Three, there's bread, the bread of the presence. There were 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priests were also supposed to continually be replenishing and make sure there was always bread on that table. What does it represent? Well, it represented God's people always having enough, always being sustained by God. It represented Sabbath, rest, and um, long life in the land, and so on. And so you've got a table with bread, because why would you come to God? You want to know, is there a power greater than myself upon which I can depend? Is there something sustaining me that doesn't rely on my own strength? Well, I have bread to live. It's Jesus' prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, right? And perhaps importantly for our message today, it represented the people in the wilderness and how they had to rely on God's provision of providing bread, manna, from heaven in the wilderness. They didn't have to work in order to eat. God just provided it and they gathered it and God supplied their daily bread in the wilderness. So again, at face value, why come to God? One, you're coming for light, wisdom, you want to see. Two, guidance, the path, how do I live? Three, I need bread. I need to be sustained. I have needs. I want to know, is there a power greater than myself to provide? Has God made promises to his people that I can count on? And of course, you know, Jesus, he points to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and he says, they don't have to worry about what they're going to eat or drink or how they're going to be clothed, and yet God takes care of them. How much more for you, his children? Oh, you have little faith. You know, is that true for us? We want to know. And so we come to God. So that's this first space. It's the holy place. But remember, our passage read, we have confidence to enter the holy places, plural. Okay? Now, back in chapter 9, he talks about the most holy place, the second tent, the second room. And before we get into details, I want to pause and make a couple of observations and some questions about what he says. For one, why is the author even doing this in the first place? Why is he going through a list of all the things that were in the tabernacle? Is it just to kind of arbitrarily show how much he knows? Um, and, or is there something about that that we can take hold of today? Two, the things are out of place. He rearranges things in the second tent. Why? And a lot of commentaries I read said, well, maybe he had 
a, a version of the Old Testament that no longer exists today that we don't have. Or maybe he actually just was sloppy and he got it wrong and put some things out of order. Uh, that would not fit the pattern with the rest of Hebrews. I don't buy it. Um, I believe it was very deliberate and his audience would have picked up on it. And so in particular, what you have is you have this altar of incense and in the story of Exodus and wherever you hear about this mention, this altar is always on this side of the veil. Also, you've got three items inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is representing God's throne and his presence. But biblically, Old Testament-wise, the only thing that's ever mentioned being inside the covenant, the Ark, are the tablets. Would Aaron's rod even fit in there? That's, you know, there's interesting, what's he doing? And I believe it's very deliberate. So, what I think he's doing is he's comparing the symbol with the real thing. First, the veil. There's a veil that separates, and it represents the separation between our world crossing over into God's space. So his heavenly throne room. Second, there's an altar of incense. What does that represent? It represents God's presence. Okay, you light incense and the fragrant aroma fills the space. It's like God's presence filling the space, filling our room, filling the creation. And it particularly represented the pillar of fire that came down in the wilderness and, first of all, blocked off the Egyptians from being able to reach the Israelites, then led the Israelites through the wilderness, came down on Mount Sinai in thunder and smoke, and then settles on the tabernacle, the place that is a copy of the mountain, right? And so this is the pillar of fire and smoke representing God's presence, represented by the altar of incense here, filling that place. So passing through the veil and the cloud, you come into the ark, which contains three items. And if you're paying attention, the first puzzle piece is that there seems to be a connection between the three items in the first tent and the three items in the ark. The lampstand fashioned with almond blossoms in the first tent. And then in the ark, there's a rod that actually budded with almond blossoms and even almonds, according to Numbers 17. The bread of the presence, reminding the people that God provided manna in the wilderness. And then in the ark, you have a jar of manna from the wilderness. Or the table representing service and regulations, and in the ark you have the tables, the tablets of the law. What do you notice about this? In the first tent, everything in there is a man-made symbol and depends on human maintenance and regulations. In the second tent, each of those items comes straight from God himself. God caused Life to bud from a dead branch. God um, provided the manna in the jar. God, it's said, by his own hand, etched the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, the law, as opposed to everything in the first tent. So it's a contrast between the first and the second, the real thing versus the copy. And imagine you're interacting with these symbols. If you were a priest in that time, knowing that the real thing is over there on the other side of a curtain, it's inaccessible. 
But there's a hope, right? There's a connection. I have this assurance that what I'm longing for by doing this act is real and is across the veil. But you can't go through the veil. Art Kendall um, came to me one, after one of these messages and said, you know, you could summarize the whole message of the book of Hebrews in one word, better. Okay, it's all about contrasting the old and, and with the better. Because the argument is we have something much better than worship systems dependent on human work and regulations. And when facing persecution, the temptation was to go back to that old system, to what was familiar. But in that old system, the way was shut. Okay? Our passage continues, When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. They had to come back again and again. But only the high priest ever entered the, whole, the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance or the way to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. And then he says, this is an illustration. And the word is actually parable. He's saying, what I'm saying in that old tent system was a parable for the present time. In other words, as those old things we're looking for when we come to God were represented by these symbols, they represent a real thing that was inaccessible but has now come in the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. The way was shut. Why? Because as the psalmist says, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only he who has, a, who has clean hands and a pure heart. The way was shut because there is no way to cleanse our, conscience, our consciences. And so they had to keep coming back again and again. And the, what he's saying is the very fact that this thing existed and had to be performed was proof that what was needed to be able to stand in the presence of God could not actually be provided because you can't come into the presence of God unless you have a clear conscience, unless your heart is made clean and our hearts are broken. Our hearts are unclean. You could have proximity but you couldn't come in. You see, every religious system is dependent upon some kind of action or work that we must do in order to gain access to God. Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? It's the one who climbs the hardest. The one who's most virtuous, most righteous, earns his way there, right? I heard a, a preacher once say that oftentimes you can tell if someone really understands what it means to be a Christian by answering this question, are you a Christian? <laughs> and if they say something like, well, I'm trying, 
They don't get it. It reveals they don't understand Christianity. Trying doesn't make you a Christian. It isn't dependent upon your trying. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In order to come to God, our conscience has to be purified. But notice what He didn't say. He didn't even say to purify our conscience from sin. Although you can find that in Scripture very easily. But that's not the point. He says to purify our conscience from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are good works. Good works done from the wrong heart. See, if we're always trying to work our way up the mountain, or be able to earn for yourself from God what those symbols represent... What does that do to us? First of all, it turns you into a jerk. Okay, first of all, you develop a superiority complex. I base my identity and my pride on how high I can climb in contrast to everyone else. You become legalistic, judgmental. Two, we begin to believe that we can actually mediate God's presence on our own terms. It's up to what I do that gets me in the door. And God has to answer me. In other words, I can make a deal, right? I can bargain with him. If I please him enough over here, he'll, he'll give me this or that. And I start to negotiate the terms of our engagement on my own terms. I can't do that. Three, we carry an immense burden in which it feels like you're never doing enough because you are never doing enough. And if you feel like you've ascended to a certain point, chances are you're hiding something and now you've got to save face and you're two people. There's a split personality going on. You're one person in front of everyone else, pretty fake, and there's another person in private who's still struggling over here, but you can't make that known. You keep trying harder, but you keep failing and it's never enough. It's a crushing load. It feels like slavery. It feels like a burden. Like the older brother in the prodigal son story who says, look to his father, all my life I've been slaving away for you, but you never gave me even a young goat to celebrate with and so on. And the father says, my son, you've always been with me and everything I have has always been yours. Like we've got two narratives here. We've got two stories going on. How did we get here? Which one do you believe? And that's what happens. Ultimately, we will resent God. We will interpret his freedom as slavery. And we'll start to see the slavery that we've come out of as freedom. And that's illustrated for us in Deut or Numbers 16 through 18. And if you want to do some good reading, this is the backdrop to this whole section of chapters in Hebrews. Okay? The context is there's a rebellion because God has chosen a particular person, Aaron, and Aaron alone, and then his offspring, to be the ones to be able to come into that most holy place. But there's a rebellion because the people start saying, who are you to say you're the people of God? 
We're the people of God, and you're just trying to put burdens on us, and so on and so forth. And so it leads up to this big rebellion, and there's a man named Korah who convinces people that he and the rest are God's true people, while Moses and Aaron and the Levites are trying to, Levites are trying to lord it over the people. And in number 16, verse 12, it says, Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they replied, We refuse to come before you. Isn't it enough that you brought us out of Egypt, a land flowing with milk and honey, to kill us here in the wilderness so that now you can treat us like your subjects? Whoa! Right? We've, we've, got, a, we've got a rewriting of history going on here, right? What was Egypt? Egypt was slavery, back-breaking work, and genocide, for heaven's sakes. And now they're looking back because when you're in the wilderness, the grass always looks greener on the other side. And if you don't understand the foundation of your salvation, you're going to interpret that wilderness as slavery when, in fact, God is leading you through to freedom. And you're going to interpret slavery, Egypt, as a land flowing with milk and honey. Speaking of the wilderness, do you guys remember the first message where we talked about a survival trip in the wilderness and said there's no rest in the wilderness. Remember how I talked about Mr. Linder? He's here right now. So, yeah, they, they heard that. <laughs> I didn't say anything too bad, but if you're wondering if I was lying, you can go ask him. Um, anyway, look, I'll digress. We'll get back into our, our message here. So the people are rebelling against God. And the short of the story is God consumes these 250 rebels with fire. He sets up a reminder that no outsider who isn't from Aaron can draw near to God's throne. But the people, they don't get it. So they all congregate. All the people come to Moses and Aaron the next day. And it says the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, like grumbling against Mr. Linder. And against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it. And so they're looking, and all of a sudden, God's presence comes down. And the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron approach, and God says, Get away from these people. I'm going to finish them off in a moment. And they fall on their faces, and, and Moses says to Aaron, he says, quick. He says, get incense. Okay, get the cloud, right? Get a censer with a burning coal and put incense on it, and get out into the midst of the people and make atonement for them. Atonement means cover in Hebrew, cover them. Because God's wrath has already gone out and the plague has already begun. Now, if you understand how to read a Hebrew Bible, you pick up on design patterns and repeated words. We've heard these words before. First of all, incense. What did we say incense means? It's the cloud, the pillar of God that divided the Holy Spirit that divides the day from the night, the light from the darkness, right? It's the cloud that divided Egypt from the Israelites. And so Aaron does this. He gets this incense and he runs out into the people. And standing there, the text actually says he stood between the living 
and the dead. And the plague stopped when it hit the cloud of incense. What does it mean? Well, where have we heard the word plague before? Egypt, right? The Exodus. So here's an interesting little fact. In the creation story, the, in the Genesis, the first six days of creation, there are six days and there are ten acts of creation, starting with light that separates the darkness from the light. In the Exodus story, there are ten plagues. And the wording of the plagues, each one has little phrases that connect you with each one of those creation acts, but going backwards. Okay, so what is God doing? He's reversing the order in life that he brought into creation out of chaos and darkness, and he's reverting Egypt back to chaos and darkness and death. And so until you finally end up with the first act, they're in perpetual darkness and the first plague of the firstborn, there's death. And so uh, then you have, I think I lost my place here, my train of thought, wait for it. <laughs> the people come out of Egypt and the pillar of cloud comes down, divides Egypt from Israel, who are pursuing the Israelites and trying to kill them. And it says that the cloud on one side was light and there was darkness on the other side. What is that? That's the first act of creation. Then what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. That's the second day of creation. Then what does he do? They emerge onto dry land. That's the third day of creation and so on. So you've got a representative story going on with the plague and darkness in Egypt. And now, once again, the people are rebelling against God. They're aligning themselves with Egypt and said slavery to Egypt was better milk and honey than manna in the wilderness, and you're just trying to turn us into slaves. And so God says, all right, you want Egypt? Here comes the plague. And so what, is, what happens? The cloud goes out with Aaron and stands in the divide between the living and the dead. Unfortunately, 14,700 people died that day not including the ones who had previously been burned up. But there's this peculiar thing happening here. In Aaron, you have a high priest, uh, a priestly figure, flesh and blood, who seems to have been given the ability to participate in God's will and action. He goes out with the emblem representing God's spirit that creates a barrier to God's wrath. He's a mediator on our behalf. Do you see where this is going? It's a Christ figure, right? So he goes out to cover the people just as the cloud covered the Israelites. Next, we have the staff. After this, God gives a sign so that the people will not grumble and so that they will live. He has them take 12 staffs representing the 12 tribes of Israel and put them all into the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant. And overnight, one of those staffs buds with leaves and almond blossoms and even almonds as a sign that this is Aaron's place 
And he's there to put it before the testimony so that it would always remind the people that only Aaron can draw near to God. And anyone else who tries is going to die because they don't have a clear conscience. But what Aaron and his family provide for the people as a covering can only ever accomplish is proximity, not entrance. Because nothing has actually been done at this point to cleanse the conscience. Dead works don't do the job. They only, they only cause us to put our confidence in ourselves and ultimately to interpret God's freedom as slavery and real slavery as freedom leading to rebellion against God. John 1 says that Jesus was that word of God through whom God created all things. And he says that that word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that spirit, that dividing presence is resident in flesh and blood now. And on the cross, God's wrath is being poured out again. The plague is coming down once more. Luke 23, 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're seeing the plague, darkness coming down while the light, while the sun's light failed. Wrath. Plague, death, right? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. Right? The incense, the cloud. And having said this, he breathed his last why did he put things out of order? Because the plague came down on our new Aaron and landed on Jesus' flesh so that the veil this time could be torn open and we could enter through his spirit, through the cloud. How do we enter? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, the people gather together and pillars of fire come down on them now to say, you are now the tabernacle, the place where God's spirit dwells. There's no barrier anymore. And they all start speaking in other languages they go out, the people think they're drunk, there's, there's quite a commotion, and Peter delivers this big sermon, and they're cut to the heart, they say, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You enter covered by God's own Spirit, because you've been cleansed by his blood. The Spirit covers us so that when we come in, God sees not the side of us that was put to death with Jesus in baptism. We're laying aside our flesh when we were baptized and submerged in the grave in water with him. So that we can rise with a new life defined by that Holy Spirit. 
So when God's presence looks upon us, he doesn't see my dead works, he sees his son's work. And that was enough. And so that's my way in. I can now come freely with confidence into the holy places. The three questions, what do I need? Why would I come to God in the first place? I need light. I need wisdom. A clear conscience. Now you can draw near with a clear conscience, he says, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. By the way, this is Aaron's ordination ceremony, so he could draw near to that place, being sprinkled and washed and so on, so that we can draw near with a clear conscience. I need bread in the wilderness. Hold fast to your confession, for he who promised is faithful. That's what Paul told the sailors on the ship in Acts 29 when they're about to die, Acts 27 through 29, being shipwrecked. And they've been without food for 14 days and there is no more hope. And Paul says, hold fast. Don't lose hope. And he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks. And he says, this is for your preservation, your salvation. For the Lord has told me that not a single hair on your head is going to be lost tonight. We want bread. We want assurance. Our God's promise is faithful. He says, hold fast, for he who promised is faithful. And we want to know how to live in accord with God's will, with his law. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets are summarized into this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says today, stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord drawing near. We need each other to hold fast. We need each other to be encouraged towards love, that we be known by our love because we've been shown a love. We've got our illustration here. What is it to be in the Holy of Holies? Not even only the Holy of Holies, but in the Ark of the Covenant the presence of God in Christ. It is to have the lamp and the bread and the table drawn near with a true heart. Hold fast to your confession. He who promises faithful and stir one another towards love and good deeds. This is life on the mountaintop. This is life in the Eden earth intersect, okay? This is the restored Eden of our time. Those things were a parable for now, and now those three things are what life looks like in the presence of God. Draw near. Hold fast. Stir one another to love and good works. On this side of the veil, our works are no longer dead works resulting in resentment and rebellion but good deeds reflecting the love of God shown to us in Christ, who has now made us priests on behalf of the world around us. These works are a response to our freedom, not slavery to earn it. Draw near, hold fast, stir one another to love and good deeds. That's what it looks like when we come with confidence into the holy places. The real thing, not just play acting, not just doing rituals with replicas, 
This is the mountaintop. This is the garden. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's a lot of heady stuff here. And I just pray, Lord, that the picture would be clear. That we can actually come to you today. And that ability came at a terrible price. But a price that you were willing to pay. You yourself in Christ became the veil, the mediator whose flesh would be destroyed by the plague so that the spirit could hold back the darkness, the chaos, the wrath that was owed to us. You lived the life I should have lived. And you died the death that I should have died. And if there's anyone here now, Lord, who when they think about their Christian walk, they feel a burden. If there's anyone here who would say, well, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I pray that you would reorient their understanding of what it is they say they are. Because that's not Christianity. Lord, that burden leads to resentment and rebellion. So purify us from our dead works and make us effective in your good works that are produced through freedom. And Lord, as we come to your table now, we're going to take that bread. We get to come into that place and receive a symbol once more, but a symbol that totally enacts the reality that we can trust in your promises, that you are faithful to sustain and provide, because it's not on our dead works, it's on your finished work. So God, we draw near to you now, in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just a reminder that you are loved and you have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church. It's the Advent season and we have a couple of seasonal events that I'd like to invite you to. Come and enjoy some local talent and food at our annual Sounds and Tastes of Christmas event, December 15th at 6 o'clock p.m. Also, our Christmas Eve candlelight service on December 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. We'd love to see you sharing that with us. God bless and have a wonderful week.